Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. you got a week to make your mind up about joining us in Palm Beach a week from today, April 6th, uh, late afternoon for a live taping of the Commentary Magazine Podcast. Go to commentary.org slash live podcast for more details. Joining me then and now, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, but not next week, unless he, you know, wants to, you know, fly down on his private jet. Uh, AI Puba, scholar, author of many books, commentary contributor, Yuval Levin. Hi, Yuval. Hi, John. Great to be with you. So, Yuval, uh, I wanted to ask you to join us because we're going to do something a little different today. Um, there was uh, yesterday, Ezra Klein of the New York Times, founder of Vox, uh, probably the most successful amateur uh, wonk uh, in American history as he started uh, a blog in the early 2000s and uh, emerged from that blog with a this company Vox that ended up uh, with a valuation somewhere north of $400 million, basically as an, uh, something that emerged from that blog and associated things. And he's a classic uh, liberal to progressive uh, democratic aligned guy uh, who fancies himself something of an economic and economic savant and uh, he has a podcast now at the New York Times, and the New York Times runs transcripts of that podcast. And his podcast that he released yesterday was with uh, Lawrence Summers, uh, uh, head of Obama's uh, Council of Economic Advisors, Treasury Secretary to Bill Clinton, um, and uh, former president of Harvard, uh, and as I think a lot of people know, uh, Larry Larry Summers, uh, alone among sort of mainstream Democratic economists, was sounding the alarm at the very beginning stages of the Biden presidency about the inflationary threat to the United States, um, and <clears throat> was doing so in a way that started out with people being annoyed uh, on the you know on the Democratic side that he was kind of like harshing their mellow and yucking their yum and he wasn't like joining in with the exuberance of uh, of this um, rebirth of the New Deal and the progressive experiment and the, the new LBJ, the new JFK, the new efforts here, but saying, look, the data are looking very bad and very worrisome. Um, and yet, Everything proceeded as it proceeded with six, uh, well, I guess $4 trillion in the Biden presidency of entirely new spending uh, to offset the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And then, of course, uh, various other proposals. And um, uh, Klein was one of these people who was either indifferent or skeptical about the dangers that, uh, that Summers was uh, laying out. And this um, this podcast column thing that is in the New York Times yesterday is a rueful acknowledgement of his own uh, interesting, intellectually honest, rueful acknowledgement of his own error and the fact that uh, increasingly um, Summers looks like a prophet without honor, uh, a guy who told the Democrats that they were walking the country into deep peril and was not listened to. And we're now, you know, uh, 16 months or 15 months into the Biden presidency. And we have uh, the worst inflation in 40 years and the Fed now talking about tightening and all sorts of stuff. And here's what Ezra Klein uh, says of Summers in, in the, in the inter introduction to the, to this conversation month after month, Summers said that the inflation wasn't just transitory. It wasn't just going to go away. There weren't just supply chain problems that would unkink, that this wasn't just going to be a problem of autos and energy, that the markets were wrong and the forecasters were wrong and the pundits were wrong and the Fed was wrong. And we were headed for a serious bout of inflation. And damn it, he was more right than he was wrong. By the way, that sentence, which is nice, 
is also false because he wasn't wrong. So he was right, not more right than wrong. He was right and he was right. And there is very little wrong. But nonetheless, getting back to Ezra Klein, you can debate it and people do. If he was right for the right reasons or right for some of the wrong reasons or it's contingency or luck or what will happen next. But the things he was saying six months ago are conventional wisdom now. Inflation is still here. It seems in many ways to be getting worse, even as the economy is weakening a bit. The idea of transitory inflation that is gone, that has been retired. The data now show that inflation is pretty broad-based. It's not just in a few goods. And throughout this interview, as we'll detail in a little bit, he keeps saying, I can't, I, you know, it, it gives me no pleasure to admit this, but inflation is bad. And the expectations that things were just going to come along that would melt it away aren't right. And therefore, I guess that everything that I believed was wrong. Now, wh- why is this of interest to us? And then I want you all to respond to this. It's of interest to us because he was wrong. Liberals were wrong. Um, you know, liberal economists were wrong. The liberals who thought that, you know, uh, creating uh, this enormous, throwing this enormous amount of money at the coronavirus uh, pandemic and flooding the country with uh, government largesse and all of this uh, was going to have salutary consequences. And some of them still think there are, as I see 538 has a piece out today about how terrible it is that the child tax credit, the one-year child tax credit has been uh, eliminated or, you know, has, has been allowed to sunset by the Congress uh, because that one program, you know, lifted millions of people from poverty. So we now know that government spending can have this wonderful effect on lifting people from poverty, except for the simple fact that as people are being lifted from poverty, we now have an inflation rate of 8% annually, which eats away at, at every 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 person's not only wage growth, but salary and all of that. And a lot of that comes from stuff like the child tax credit. So they were wrong. We were not wrong. And this is an important, uh, this is an important proviso as we discuss this, which is not only this podcast, but conservatives all over the place. And not just the ones who were, you know, just will say every, everything Biden does is bad and anything that happens is bad and all gas prices are due to Biden and all that, that kind of stuff. But the very simple logic that if you flood the economy with gigantic amounts of government spending, that that's inherently inflationary, um, is so axiomatic to us that we said, oh, this is not going to be good on the inflation front. And um, and this uh, discussion between Ezra Klein and Larry Summers takes place entirely within the within the confines of of liberal talking points and liberal and, and sort of this dark night of the soul for liberal economics, which got this big demonstration project test in 2021 of its priors and has been handed a terribly depressing set of lessons. Um, So should we, you've all be taking a victory lap here and saying, see, we were right all along, or is this more in the lines of it is heartening to see that relatively honest liberals seeing the results of the policies that they wished to see inst- you know uh, instituted ha- are now reckoning with the consequences of those policies that they celebrated well look i think it is first of all worth saying that this is a an impressive thing to see um and that what ezra klein does in this interview is pretty impressive he just acknowledges you sort of see him, you see it dawning on him that, that, that a lot of the kind of sloganeering economics of, uh, of, of the left over the past 20 years uh, has missed something very important. And he's genuinely coming to terms with it. There's a kind of banging into reality. And at the heart of that reality is the danger of inflation and the cost of inflation. Um, it's something that we haven't really had to think about for more than a generation now, and that the left has therefore allowed itself to imagine that the only thing that stands in the way of all of the socioeconomic transformations that they want is the will to spend. And that what's missing in American politics is the will to spend money, to push wages up, to push money out. But Larry Summers reminds him over and over that spending like that has diminishing returns after some point because 
purchasing power starts to decline. Wages can only rise so fast before the rise itself becomes counterproductive. And that certainly is something that conservatives have been saying a long time. Now, I think we have to acknowledge that conservatives have been warning about inflation for a long, long time and <laughs> have been wrong until lately. Um, and so it is worth saying that, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorials about this in the past year have turned out to be absolutely correct. But they were writing those editorials 15 years ago. Um, and so nobody's been quite right about 21st century inflation. Uh, I do think that the, the way that Summers explains some of this in that conversation is very helpful, that essentially you have to deal with reality. And the reality that matters is not the fact that your guy finally won the election. That's not the reality that makes a difference. The reality that matters is that the economy is in a certain situation. And that means that you have to respond to it realistically. One other thing I'd say, though, is that there's one more facet of this that Summers didn't talk about because he himself is not very comfortable with it. And that is not just the, the, the cost of this kind of uh, 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 stimulative spending, but the overall burden of public spending and borrowing and debt and the inflationary risks of a just massive government debt, um, which is also very relevant to this inflation question. And, you know, if we find ourselves with much higher interest rates, as, as Summers expects we will, the cost of that debt becomes dramatically worse very quickly. And we really are playing a dangerous game here that even Summers for now is not willing to draw the attention of liberals to. But sooner or later, we have to deal with. Right. So we should we should maybe unpack that a little bit. And I'm, I'm very I'm very glad that you pointed out that that the um, the conservative expectations of inflation pretty much from the financial meltdown onward uh, turned out uh, th th those fears were honest and they were, yes. they were realistic and they seemed to, uh, the idea was just that we were printed that, you know, a giant sinkhole had opened in the economy and that what the fed was doing effectively was pumping money into the sinkhole with the hopes that it would help close up the sinkhole. It would, it would fill the hole and then we could get back to par. And even as it was pumping and pumping, putting all this money into the sinkhole, the economy wasn't strengthening. So it was A, pumping money into the sinkhole, and B, keeping interest rates effectively negative for many, many years without all that much positive effect. But it certainly did not have an inflationary effect. And then Somewhere around 2017, 2018, and we can argue what the causes of that were, but it could also have just been time, 10 years of QE3 or whatever, uh, not, not the Trump tax cuts or Trump, you know, eliminating economic uncertainty, though, though maybe those were the reasons. We, we don't really know. But by 2019, the economy was hot. The American economy was hot uh, unemployment was effectively gone wage growth was significant um job mobility was starting up again in a way that it hadn't in you know nearly 20 years and stuff like that and then came this exogenous event this horrible exogenous event and uh and trump and the republicans reacted to it in 2020 as did the democrats with two trillion dollars in, in 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 economic relief and that seemed to have a positive impact. And then Biden comes in and decides literally to double down or triple down on that economic relief and go for another $4 trillion. And so the, the commonsensical reaction to the Biden idea that let not, let's not even call it an ideological reaction was, but wait a minute, are the conditions present so that if you throw $4 trillion into the economy, the economy isn't going to overheat and inflation isn't going to spiral and demand isn't going to go out absolutely bananas when we already know that supply, the amount of goods being produced to meet that demand had been interrupted in a kind of pretty dangerous way for the previous year. So as a That's result, what's different, isn't it? Yeah. That's what's different. It's a supply crunch. 2001, 2008. Those were all efforts to subsidize demand because credit was drying up. And here we had an effort to subsidize demand when there was just too much demand. 
that's what was different. Too much demand for not enough supply. That's what changed right. everybody's expectations. Right. And I remember in November of last year, have, you know, tongue in cheek, throwing out a picture of Paul Volker, Volker saying, you know, miss me yet. Saying on, on, on Twitter. Right. Saying we kind of need a mini recession to truncate demand, to curb demand, to catch up with supply, which is artificially limited. And everybody's expected, oh, it was all going to clear up. But it didn't clear up and it's not going to clear up. And the war in Europe suggests it's not going to clear up anytime soon. And that's what's giving everybody these palpitations and making them realize that not only do we need a tighter money supply, according to Summers, we will not get 2% inflation without at least having a mild recession, an acknowledgement of reality. But it's not just the Fed's burden here. The most amazing part of that interview was when he talks about what Biden should be doing and is not doing uh, up to and including reducing tariffs on foreign imports and not subsidizing the purchase of Amer goods made in America to benefit key constituencies and maybe paring back some of our regulatory restrictions, like allowing airlines to fly people uh, and continuing routes from, from Europe and not, you know, not uh, licensing professionals who otherwise don't need a license to operate in their professions, like cutting people's hair. He didn't talk about how the White House has artificially truncated uh, domestic energy production, but that's probably right. in in this rubric that he's discussing. And all of these are libertarian economic prescriptions. That is the fact, right. So I want to read uh, some from the interview to give you a sense of, of Summers, who remember is maybe the leading public economic intellectual uh, on the liberal left or has been really for 30 years. You know, Obama, Clinton, Harvard, um, Serious guy says in the course of this interview that he supported the Build Back Better bill. He is not, he's not one of us. He's not, you know, he's not a conservative. He he says he spent his entire career supporting Keynesian economic policies. And even that's an insane within the context of this entire interview. No, but that but that's what he says, and it's true. <laughs> but that is what he's, he's like, ah, oh, there's too much money in the supply, but I definitely support more money in the supply. Right. No, I know. But anyway, the point is that he's, you know, he this is his religion and he is still singing from the prayer book. He hasn't converted, you know, he hasn't converted his religion, but uh and, and still wants liberal, you know, policies in place. But here's here's the thing. Ezra Klein says to him, and then there's a supply side. We are not being able to produce the goods. Factories are not being able to do things. There's a war where an important natural resource is developed, or there's a lockdown where there's a lot of manufacturing capacity. And the argument you've been having with a lot of other economists, to some degree with the Fed over the past year, is whether 2021's inflation was coming from demand, we did too much stimulus, or supply, the pandemic had just messed up supply chains. But now, in addition to that argument, there's also the question of new supply shocks is what you're saying, that Russia and China are adding more supply problems onto what we already had. Is that the right way to think about it? And then Summer says, no, it's not. Here's what he says. I think that's right in part, but I think it restates what I think is a bit of a popular confusion in the following sense. Supply is what it is. Monetary policy can't change it. Fiscal policy can change it, except in the long run. And so given what supply is, it's the task of demand to balance supply. This is a very interesting and kind of unusual formulation because I haven't really heard it before. And he, he, he elucidates it very beautifully here. If demand is greater than supply, then you're going to have excess inflation. You're going to have the problems of financial excess. That's not the beauty. Here it is. So the job of demand managers principally the Fed, is to judge what supply is and calibrate appropriately. It's not an excuse for inflation to blame it on supply. It's a reality in the environment that you have to deal with. And so the job is to look for measures of overheating, and when you see the measures of overheating, to apply restraint. In other words, six, eight months ago, when they saw the supply chain problems and saw that this was creating overheated demand, that was when the Fed was supposed to react. Then, because you don't want to overheat and then say, oh, you know what, now is time for me to pour water uh, you know, into the car radiator. This is, by the way, a totally anachronistic thing because nobody has water jugs to pour into the car radiator when your car overheats in the desert anymore. But it's the only analogy I can think of. You, don't, you can't wait until the car is overheated because then getting the car, you have to wait a long time for the car to cool down so that you can put the water in so that it doesn't turn into steam and then 
and, or, or destroys the engine. It's these measures that I saw as developing through 2021 that were not being responded to that led to my being quite alarmed and led to a situation where before we had the Ukraine war, before we had the new problems in China, wage inflation in the United States was running at above a 6% rate and the labor market was only getting tighter. So we had a problem that was of excess demand, whether the extent to which the excess demand was related to supply being different than someone might have forecast years before is a second order question. The job is to manage so as to avoid excess demand. So if you're going to make economic policy, if you're, if you're, if you're in a position of managing, of helping to manage the economy, the management trick is to prevent the bad thing that has now already happened. And now where we are, Larry Summers says to Ezra Klein, and Ezra Klein has to grudgingly acknowledge, is that the job number one now is to manage the crisis that was created in 2021. Any forward thinking, any positive liberal economic policies that can be pursued have to be shelved because terrible things are happening. And what's more, terrible things are going to happen to the very people that Ezra Klein and Larry Summers think there should be a prefer preferential option for, you know, with the poor. Uh, inflation is a regressive tax, as is the most regressive tax there is. It hits, it hits everybody at the same level. So the less money you have, <laughs> the more the more corrosive it is to, to the power of your money. And then you have the interesting thing you've all that you brought up, which is wage growth for 20 years. All we've heard is there's this terrible stagnation in wage growth and it's terrible. And the producers have all the power. The bosses have all the power. There's no wage growth. There's no, it's terrible that there's no wage growth, except when there's a lot of wage growth because of trade-offs because of the nature of, of the balance of the you know of, of economic activity if you have too much wage growth too fast then you also have a condition in which you overheat because businesses have to pay too much for labor and now paying way too much more for labor they have to compete for labor and then they pay more for labor and then they have to pass on the costs if they're not going to go broke and then the very people who've gotten these wage increases now have to go to the store and pay more for food and gas and pay more for all this, all the stuff because it, it, everyone is going through the same cycle. So they may have wage growth of 5%, but if you get inflation at 7%, your effective wage growth is negative. You don't have wage growth. You're effectively at a 2% decline, not a 5% gain. But this is where I think one of the underappreciated things about this transcript, you know, this, this conversation that they had is that, Summers, first of all, his tone, he managed to be sort of more therapeutic than condescending, which I mean, that must have taken some discipline because there were so many moments where Ezra Klein wanted to make the political pitch, make this argument, which we've heard over and over again, such as look at the greedy corporations who have earned all this money during during this time of, of difficulty for Americans. We have to punish them. That's the sort of Elizabeth Warren tone. He, he knocks that one down very simply, again, with very simple economic lessons. Like we know that this is how things work, supply, demand, et cetera. But he also really does push back every time Ezra Klein tries to make the excuse, which I think is also the same uh, communication line we've been hearing consistently from the Biden administration that it's not our fault. Just look at all the crazy stuff that's been happening to us, right? It's we. How could we possibly be blamed for our lack of leadership and, and decision making on economic policy when we've had a pandemic and now a war? I was, I was. It was notable to me how often Ezra Klein kept trying to bring up the Russia-Ukraine crisis because that has been the effort in the last few weeks that the Biden administration has tried to respond to questions about inflation. But we know Americans are not concerned. They're concerned about their gas prices, yes, but they're not making that leap because they've been experiencing this for a longer stretch of time than before the war broke out. So I, I did appreciate that there's a political messaging pushback he was doing, again, very gently, but he wasn't allowing that that political message to come through because it it does not comport with the facts economically on the ground. Okay, you know, I, Abe, think what yeah. the, I the, just want to. Oh, sorry, Abe, go ahead. But, but just in regards to Christine's point about Larry Summers not being condescending, it was remark. What really struck me about this, yes, I, I commend Ezra Klein for doing this, but uh, so much of what seemed to first be dawning on him strikes me as sort of conventional wisdom on economics. And I don't know if that's entirely because I'm conservative, 
Uh, Larry Summers, of course, is not. And these, you know, sort of things like uh, lessons of stagflation, that that that's a that's a that's a new one on Ezra Klein somehow. Unintended, yes. cons- unintended consequences. Yes. The, the, the fact that too much money chasing too few goods is 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 a problem. I I couldn't get over it. So Ezra Klein, I believe, is 40 years, not not yet 40 years old. And there is a real I, I don't mean to be. And I know Noah is also. And you can yeah, be historically minded. Heights. OK, there you go. Well, that's that's <laughs> I, I, I don't have a comeback for that. Uh, indeed, you have read the commanding heights, and that is a the object lesson. But um, the point is, and, and, and you've all you're 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 a young, you're all, even a you're young people, and you don't remember what it was like to live through inflation, and I do. And uh, Larry Summers is older than I am, and he remembers what it was like to live through inflation, and he says, "What happened in the '70s that is happening now?" And he it, he explicitly says this reminds me of the 70s, is that it got Thatcher and Reagan elected because liberal economics was proved to have deleterious macroeconomic consequences on a scale that even the people who put them in place never even fathomed could happen. They did not know. They had all the best intentions in the world, and then all these trade-offs and all of these unintended consequences happened. And they were uniquely ill-equipped to address the failure of their own policies, which is not surprising. Like, it's hard for people. People can't manage their own failures. You know, if, if Chamberlain leads to World War II, he's got he's, he's to he's eventually resign and let, let Churchill run World War II because he got, he got all, the, all the priors wrong. But I want to read, Abe, I want you to respond to this because this is where the poignancy of a certain type, even though I don't really feel emotionally you know invested in Ezra Klein's pain but nonetheless he says to Summers I know you're a hard-nosed economist who looks at the numbers here but I want to locate I think the emotional and some degree even political frustration of this conversation because a lot of the dynamics you're talking about that then get framed as excess demand these are things that feel just that many of us have wanted for a long time more hiring Wage increases, particularly at the bottom end, stimulus checks for people who have had a lot of bad years and didn't have a lot of cushion behind them, child tax credit for families that could really use that. And so there are a lot of policies that came together. I mean, there was a reason the Biden administration wanted to run the economy hot. There was a long period where it didn't just didn't feel the economic data showed that expansions were reaching people on the margins and it felt like finally we were reaching people on the margins and we were putting a lot of firepower to do that. But even in this terrible time, this horrifying pandemic, we were giving people who needed it quite a bit of help. And then for that to turn into this horrifying inflation problem, which is now eating back those wage increases, potentially going to require much sharper action from the Fed, I recognize that the world doesn't have to please me but it is maddening. So this is think- fantastic. This is like de-Stalinization. I swear to God, this is like people going. The I just learned that the emperor that I, you know, has no clothes. I've never read anything like this before. I mean, I didn't hear it because it, you know, apparently, you've all you listened to the conversation. I, I, I've only read it. I, I listened as well, and I think this is also uh, where Larry Summers had a great uh, formulation in response. He said, "Well, look, I, I share the concerns about the same people, and I want the same ends. Um, but uh, if you consider the doctor who prescribes painkillers for someone who's in great pain, uh, yes, it alleviates their pain in the short term. If they get addicted, however, in the long term, they have not done them." Uh, a a good service here. What's striking about Ezra Klein saying this is I think it, it, it points to the obverse is that, well, because he believed in these in, because Ezra Klein wanted these things and believed in these policy moves because they were just, the idea is that if you didn't believe in these policies, if you oppose them, um, it was because you wanted unjust ends. You wanted injustice visited upon these people. And I think there's, uh, he wasn't um, evincing it explicitly, but 
especially if things like stagflation and unintended consequences and, and so on are new to you, if you if you were unaware on the whole that 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 these were the the the, the arguments against um, liberal economic policy, what you argued with on your side was was kind of purely bad faith. It, you know, the 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 arguments against things, what Larry Summers were saying were were ran along the lines of, you know, people just want to be greedy and people don't want to help the poor. And if you want to engineer a recession, you just want people to, to suffer pain and economic consequences, people that you'll never meet because they're poorer than you. At least that's what the MMTers used to yeah. say. Right. <laughs> During well, that very brief moment in 2021 when that's uh, modern, modern monetary, monetary policy. policy, that that's the idea that you could spend you could deficit spend forever with literally no economic consequences. That, no, this, that was they always ignore the second part of that theory, which is that you have to tax the hell out of all that money that you're borrowing at extremely low rates in order to avoid inflation. Inflation is part of modern modern monetary theory. It's just completely ignored by all of its advocates. Yeah. And one of the ways that the last few years have really shown up this way of thinking is that to actually be in the moment where that kind of decision would have to be made, it's perfectly obvious to everybody that that, 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 that raising of taxes is never going to happen. Or, for example, we, we've learned that the, the Green New Deal, which would have required much higher gas prices, was obviously never going to happen. We have slightly higher gas prices and it is being treated as a, the disastrous end of the world. And it's very bad for a lot of people. So we now know or should know very clearly that none of the environmental policies that Democrats have been pushing for 25 years are in any sense realistic. I, I think uh, in, there's there's this kind of larger story that's advanced by what Summers is able to do here, which is that I think a lot of implicitly a lot of what the left has argued for a generation now is that we've overlearned the lessons of the 1970s and that. Republicans always think it's the 1970s, whether it's on crime, whether it's on uh, foreign policy, whether it's on economics. And of course, there is a way in which some Republicans always think it's the 1970s. But there are also times that are actually like that. And what's relevant is not whether you, you sort of liked it or didn't. What's relevant is what's going on now and how should we react to it? And one way to kind of step back from what Summers did here is for him to say, yeah, we can like this or we can dislike that, but what's actually going on now? Um, and, you know, the, the little, the, the bit that you read, John, which really is stunning. I mean, it, it's like you're listening to John Taylor, you know, the sort of classic Republican opponent of Larry Summers over all those years, just saying, you know, the Fed's got to do its job. It can't ask what the politics demands. It has to ask what's going on in the economy. And Summers, to his credit, sees that in this moment and just says, there are things we can control and there are things we can't control. And the things we can control require us to take steps that may be unpopular. And I don't have to run for office. So here's what I think needs to happen. And the, the, the inability to contend with that set of realities is just a really striking fact about the contemporary left. And I, like you said, I don't know that I've ever seen it revealed more plainly than in this extraordinary conversation. I am. Um, I want to draw an interesting, cause uh, you know, since you've all, since you mentioned at the beginning, you know, that Republicans got inflation, you know, got inflation wrong before liberals clearly got inflation very wrong. Let me offer this analogy and maybe it's imprecise and, and I, and it deserves criticism, but um, something happened in 2008 with the market meltdown, which is that um, the, the, for want of a better word, the conservative economic theory or the conservative idea was that markets were self-correcting and that, what happened in 2008 wasn't really couldn't re, wasn't really supposed to happen that um if you created these financial instruments that ended up uh you know basically uh, uh hollowing out the financial system by creating this enormous amount of debt that could never be repaid once uh, you know or 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 couldn't or margins calls that could never be met once you know, once the tide started going out and you saw where everything was, um, that what we had been assured of by like people who, who came to be called market fundamentalist was that really wasn't possible that the market would self-correct, that people wouldn't 
take on that kind of risk. It was too dangerous to take on that kind of risk and that, and that therefore those risks wouldn't be taken. People might want to try to convince you to do it, but that wiser heads would prevail and the wisdom of the wisdom of the, you know, the collective mind of the, of the markets would, would fix that. And then you had this massive market failure uh, in the form of the, the CDO collapse and therefore the, the hollowing out of banks and, and this uh, maelstrom. And what we have here is um, a liberal, a Keynesian failure. Um, that leads an honest person like Larry Summers to say, well, we stepped in it. Like we tried to do something and we thought that it was going to be okay for all kinds of self-justifying reasons in our own heads. And uh, it really wasn't. And now the very people that we want to help are going to be disproportionately hurt by the things that are happening here and not just them, everybody, but really them more than anybody else. So like I said, you create a child child tax credit for a year and it ends up whittling away at the purchasing power of the poor. You haven't done them a lot of good. I mean, it's, it's, and, and the purchasing power and, and that has a, and he Summers keeps making reference here to short-term and long-term consequences. Like, you think that the problem is this year and that inflation will calm down over this year, but decisions are being made as a result of inflation by businesses, by forecasters, by all of that, that then start having a cascading effect in out years, in the years to come, in the years to follow, which is why the medicine to, you know, in this sense, not to keep with this, you, know, you made the addiction, you, you brought up uh, Summer's addiction argument, but it's like, if you have a condition and it goes untreated, the further you let the condition go untreated, the more severe the treatment is going to have to be once you treat it. So if you let inflation go unanswered, if the Fed presses on the brake too lightly in the course of this year, for example, as it appears it is going to do it, that it's actually going to press on the brake too lightly, then it's going to have to press on the brake twice as hard in 2023. And Summers says, which I'm sure is really something that Democrats are desperate to hear, that we are going to go into a recession in 2023 or 2024. It is like baked in the cake now because the only answer to inflation is going to be very high interest rates and they're going to get higher and higher the higher the inflation goes to to cut it down, um, you know, as uh, I think, uh, as as Klein mentions, like by 1981, there were interest rates in the United States were 19 percent, and you know what happened? We had an, we had an unemployment rate over 10 percent higher, except for that one crazy quarter when everybody had to stay home because of lockdown, higher than it has ever been, you know, higher than it was at the worst moment of the of the financial meltdown recession and that was necessary in order to choke to kill the inflation that was going to kill the american economy so here's what summers is saying to ezra klein yes we did wonderful things so great we wanted to help the poor we wanted to do all these wonderful things well guess what there are trade-offs we get a lot of wage growth that causes inflation then eats away at the wage growth so if the wage growth is not does not um, I don't know what you call it, slide up or slope up gradually, it is going to have this consequence that it will be net zero or worse because everybody else is getting wage growth and everybody other business has to adjust its prices to account for the loss of revenue that it's or the offset in its revenue that it has to pay its labor force and so on. That's the that's where conservatism versus liberalism comes in as far as I'm concerned, or maybe this is just a deeper and you've all, you, this is your sort of subject in political philosophy. So the deepest thing about conservatism versus progressivism, which is, you know, I think there's a way that the, it's been possible for a long time to describe the difference between the right and the left on economics by saying the right thinks that the short term is a function of long-term conditions the left thinks the long-term is a function of short-term policy so that liberal economists tend to focus on short-term things, on reacting to the immediate moment in the business cycle by spending or not trying to control things. 
And Republicans say, create the conditions for growth. And over time, we'll have a very strong economy. And here's Larry Summers playing the conservative economist and basically saying, we've got to think about how to be in a better place in five years. And we cannot be in a better place in five months. Those things are not going to align well. And it, you could see just how hard this is to process in a, in a conversation among, uh, among two liberals, basically. But I think this is, this is what goes to Abe's point about why none of this comes as a surprise to us, but is incredibly difficult for someone like Ezra Klein. Because if your worldview, if your deepest understanding of human nature is that man is born to sin and the sparks fly upward, that there is no, you know, Goldilocks mean, you know, too hot, too cold, or just right. That maybe there is, or maybe there is for a while, but that everything you do has a consequence. Positives have negatives. Negatives have positive. Everything has a consequence. And that because human nature is flawed or because society is inherently uh, conflict and strife and all of that, that you should not believe that you can deliver things without costs. It's stupid. It's wrong to think it. It is a misunderstanding of the order of human society. I mean, you know, we're now having this huge fight on the right about, you know, the origins of the liberal order. And, you know, but if, if we take the source of the original liberal order in a very illiberal book, let's say Hobbes's Leviathan, basically he says in order for us to live in a world in which we're not killed, are not under threat of being killed every single day by somebody else who wants our our beer, our, our deer pelt, you know, because they're cold, we're gonna have to surrender some of our freedoms to a to a social structure that will control that person who wants to take our the, the deer pelt or control us from taking his deer pelt and Ultimately, we have no choice but to make these hard choices, because if we don't make them, then we live in a world that is nasty, brutish, and short. And so that's a founding, originating document that is both liberal and conservative, but that we've taken the lesson of the, we've taken the conservative lesson, and people like Ezra Klein, partially out of youth, partially out of the delusions created by progressive ideology, have come to some weird idea that their nostrums don't have offsetting consequences. I don't know why that is exactly, except they don't want them. Who does? And, you know, obviously all politicians do this. They say they're going to deliver only good things. And so then they have to deal with the consequences when bad things come with the good things. But that's not what an intellectual is supposed to do. Or you say, you know what? Great. You know what? Um, the, there's going to be inflation. Uh, or, you know, we need build back, but we need to go to a green economy. And it's going to be wrenchingly difficult. And there are going to be immense, enormous dislocations. And we have to do it anyway, because the world is going to end. That's the serious way to handle, you know, those kinds of policies, right? It's not to say we can do it. It'll create lots of jobs and there'll be no there'll be no fallout because then Joe Manchin is going to say, you're not going to destroy West Virginia. I'm standing here and I'm not going to let you destroy the economy of West Virginia because I represent West Virginia. You know, so if you pretend that there are no consequences, then you can't answer, uh, you can't answer a, an objection like that. I think there's implicit in some of this a, a sense that what stands in the way of things working out is other people's bad intentions rather than what stands in the way of working out is a complicated world where everything has a price. And those really are two very different ways of thinking about why we have the problems we have. I mean, that's a very, I, you know, and, and look, we do it too, right? I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a curse on the right to say that, you know, Democrats want X, Y, or Z because what they want is a totalitarian state in which they can control everybody. Or they want, you know, they want you know, whatever it is, they want to destroy Western civilization. They don't want to destroy Western civilization. Their ideas may destroy Western civilization, 
but that's not their goal. That's not their aim. They want not everybody mostly wants nice things. They want the poor to be wealthy. They want everyone to get a good education. They want families to thrive. Everybody wants pretty much the same thing. And the problem is that, you know, in the, in the quote that I can never find the source of, but that I'm sure is true. And I've asked Yuval and he can, no one can find it. And, and no asked me the same thing, but I'm going to say it anyway, Nat Glazer, probably at a symposium that I was at. So it was never transcribed said that in the 1960s, liberals in particular, or government in particular, stopped doing the things that it knew how to do like picking up the garbage and keeping the streets orderly and started trying to do things that nobody knew how to do like end poverty. Nobody knew how to do it. Nobody knows how to do it. No one will ever know how to do it. Aggre in aggregate, according to various people, including Steven Pinker and whoever wrote that book, the bottom uh, billion uh, we've done it. In aggregate, like enormous numbers of people have been lifted out of poverty on the planet Earth in the last 75 years. Astounding numbers of people. But we don't know how. We don't know how it happened. But there, but and we can't well, duplicate it, the conditions. Well, huh? sure we can. No, we can't. We, no, we know how it happened. No, no, we know how it happened. We know. In, I'm just saying that what we don't know is how to fix, you know, in the United States. We don't know how to take people. We don't know how to eliminate relativity. Right. Right. There yeah, will always right. be a bottom 5%. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there will always this, be a bottom I, quintile. But, right. But this goes to something that I think uh, in, in the opinion piece that you've all that you wrote this week in the New York Times, it we, we talk. I think one of the things that was was so refreshing about the Ezra Klein conversation is that an economist and a pundit were talking about economics in economic terms, not in political terms the entire time. But our elected officials too often just talk about economics in political terms. And that's particularly true right now for fringes on the right and the left that are controlling a lot of the party's messaging and makes it impossible for, for actually when Joe Manchin says, I'm not gonna support this because it's gonna make the people in my state have to pay more for gas, that's a plain spoken political response to an economic issue. That's not how either side tends to talk about this, because they both seem to be playing to the more extreme ideological base that they believe is the heart of their party. And I, I, I was struck after because I'd read your piece, you've all and then we were reading. I, I read the transcript of the Summers Klein conversation. And there's there's some connection there to why we can't talk about these issues in, in straightforward terms. And when we see them spoken in those terms, they're far more understandable. And you could see both sides of the political aisle having points that they could make off of this. It's also important that Summers says luck, like everything plays in an, unanticipatable things play an enormous outsized role in our existences. We didn't know there was going to be a virus. And just as in the 19, you know, in the 1970s, as we were dealing with all the, the results of these Keynesian policies that we're having that weren't working out very well. And then we got oil shocks and then we got, you know, we got exogenous consequences. We got the revolution in Iran. We had things that were exogenous consequences that had enormous effects that were really bad luck. He calls them bad luck. And we had bad luck from the coronavirus. And we now effectively have bad luck in those terms. Although it's interesting from, from Russia uh, invading Ukraine and the destabilization that that represents, except for this. I just want to read the last chunk of Summers and, and Klein having a debate because I think this is the final, the coup de grace. Okay. So Summers says, you know, just as in the 1970s, excessively inflationary policies were followed by bad luck. Just as in the 1970s, the authors of the expansionary policies chose to interpret all the problems as being a consequence of the bad luck, even though some of it was a consequence of their policies. I think it's pretty clear we're going to have significantly higher inflation this year. Because of the increases of oil prices and because of the increase in food prices and because of what's happened in China. But he basically says that's not where this all originated. And, and, and if those things go away, that's not going to solve the problem. Klein. So the counter argument you'll hear to this is that as much as telling the Grimmer story makes sense to you, to me, the subject of the show, actually, there's a place where you can look to see if particularly markets are telling the Grimmer story. And as you gesture at, they're really not yet, at least not yet. One-year inflation expectations have shot up, but if you look at three, you look at five, you look at 10-year expectations, 
they haven't moved all that much. And so the idea is if the long-term market expectations haven't moved, maybe we don't need to slam the brakes on the economy so hard. Maybe people aren't telling that longer story and they're still open to this as being the now buried adjective goes transient. And Summer says, so look, Ezra, I'd love for all that stuff to be true. I spent 20 years pushing various kinds of strongly Keynesian theories that were directed at the idea that we should promote demand more and promote demand permanently. I was one of the prominent people pushing the idea of secular stagnation, which was a whole theory about how we should need more demand. So these are ideas that are emotionally very attractive to me, but I think you have to look at the facts. And then he goes into the facts that basically seem to discredit the kinds of Keynesian demand side efforts that he was such a big proponent of. So is this just going to be meaningful to people like us? Is it because, because we liked a gotcha and I told you so and all of that, or does this herald a kind of crisis of the soul uh, that is a precursor to some kind of 1980 event Reagan, Thatcher, you know, 79 in Britain with Thatcher beating Callahan, 80 with Reagan slaughtering Carter, you know, winning by 10 points, even with a third party candidate in the race. Or, you know, is even this transient in the sense that, you know, okay, so most Democrats are going to say whatever, I still hate the Republicans and most Republicans, you know, they're not going to sort of change, switch, switch up their, their gears. You know, I think a lot of this depends. First of all, it depends on 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 the circumstances, on how bad things get and how the Biden administration reacts to them and what that looks like to voters. But I think it also depends on the capacity of the right to respond with something substantive and appealing. And in that sense, it's very important that our politics look forward and not backward, that we not just think of this as showing, well, we were right. We were right the whole time. And that's that. But trying to offer the country something that says we could be in a much better place in five years and 10 years if we do the following things, which in a sense is what is what supply side and Reaganism did in the late 70s. They did not say things would turn around immediately. And of course, they didn't. I mean, 1982 was worse than 1979, not better. But there was an argument. There was an idea. There was a confidence in the capacity of the country to turn things around. And ultimately, it was persuasive. I think it would take that for this moment to be politically consequential. It would be very easy for both parties now to fall back into the place where they're most comfortable, which is just having the same argument over and over about who was right and, uh, and, and who's terrible and evil without really offering the country very much. I, I think that w one last really striking thing for me about the summer's conversation was that it suggests that macroeconomics in general needs a, needs a new phase if it's going to be useful in the 21st century. All the categories of our macroeconomics were created to explain the Great Depression, which happened almost 100 years ago. They are still basically there as competing theories of what happened in the Great Depression, competing explanations between Keynes and Hayek and Friedman, and they still describe an economy that is a kind of the, the, the economist Arnold Kling calls it a GDP factory idea of the economy, where there's sort of one big economy and there are levels of this and levels of that. And we now live in a much more complicated world where we are in need of new ways of thinking about what economic policy can and can't do. I think there's a huge opportunity for the right to offer what is basically a more market-oriented way to think about how recessions happen, about what unemployment really is, about what the kind of economic shocks we're facing are now. But the universities are not there to do that work. Academic economics is now completely disconnected from anything that is useful to policymakers. It, it runs these little experiments in social psychology, basically. Um, and the, the work that would need to be done to help policymakers have a new language to describe how our economy will grow in this century um, has not been done. I, I sort of listened to that as a, as a think tank person thinking there's a huge opening here and who's going to fill that space? That is what the, the, our potential to succeed in economic policy is going to depend on. 
and it's an open question because the parties are not demanding that kind of change of uh, vocabulary and attitude, and it's going to somehow have to come from the outside. But the political I mean, there have been a couple is the right of, even sorry. capable of making this argument? The political incentives in 2023, 2024, if, if Larry Summers is right, there's multiple rate hikes, we're curbing demand, and we start seeing a lot more recessionary signals like we're seeing from the inverted yield cur- curve now, you're going to have economic hardship. And what's the right going to say? They're going to say, well, this is necessary to curb demand. Absolutely not. They're going to attack the, the Biden administration's uh, there's a Fed's tight money policy, and they're going to attack the Biden administration for doing Biden administration things, surely. But also they could do more Biden administration things like subsidize the right the right constituencies by American increased tariffs, what have you, Trumpian economics that will make everything worse again, according to Larry Summers. Uh, so what is the incentive on the right here to be fiscally sound, to advocate fiscally sound principles? Because they will be accompanied by short term hardship. Nobody wants to advocate short term hardship. I, that's a very interesting question. I do think that, you know, uh, it's almost like you want to incept a visionary leader and you can't because that's not the way the world works. You could say that, you know, Zelensky was somehow incepted um, into sometimes, you know, wild existential crises do sort of incept that. And I don't know that we're, we're there yet, but, um, you know, there, there have been little bits and pieces of this uh, attempt. I mean, and some of them seem very, you know, uh, spacey often. You know, you got um, Andrew Yang, you know, sort of trying to introduce radically new concepts into the Democratic uh, political uh, electorate and getting this kind of weird grassroots support from weird, uh, you know, Silicon Valley-ish people who are interested in, in, in novel programs that seem to break through old uh, barriers. And, and, you know, you've had, you've had such things on the, on the, on the right every now and then. And even in this interview, you have this conversation they have about whether or not uh, we need a national uh, political economic policy that targets regions. You know, they, they say like, Stop doing things that, you know, overheat the economies in certain very specific places. Try to do what you can to stimulate demand and supply in dead places or in, you know, in, 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 in low places or something like that. But, you know, the funny thing is we already have a system like that. That's what that's where the uh, democratic or liberal bias toward alt national action exists. The states are in competition with each other. Tax, you know, different, different, differential tax rates, corporate tax rates, uh, you know, uh, policies at the state level to encourage uh, business, let less regulation, all of that stuff. There is in the United States, unlike Europe, there is a real, there is a fifty-state ability to to pull that off. There's a reason that people have been moving to the Southwest and Texas and places like that because it's easier to do business and there are more jobs being created as a result and. Some some of us live here in New York and we keep thinking, you know, it's crazy that we haven't embraced some of these policies because like no rational person wants to live in upstate New York. It's cold, it's snowy, its infrastructure is a hundred years out of date. And so you have to give them incentives to go to to go there. And you know, it's like the only thing they can think of to do is to is to liberalize casino laws or you know, that that kind of thing. And it is um, you know, it's a it's an interesting, uh, interesting problem. But Yuval, in the end, your your piece in the New York Times, which came out yesterday or the day before yesterday, you make a very getting to know his point. Like um, the political parties have now perverse incentives that political parties have never had before. They seem to have internal political reasons to want themselves to be smaller, to limit outreach to to shrink the size of their tent which flies in the face of all rational understanding of what a party is for a party is for getting people elected and you therefore want the most voters that you can get and the idea of making yourself sort of uh, what would what would the term be sort of um you know inimical or or hostile to people who have had it with the other side but aren't with you necessarily in policy terms is uh, is is bizarre and they're, they're both in this spiral together yeah that's right i mean the parties have driven each other into this kind of malpractice where they both essentially operate as if they have too many voters and not too few voters 
they're looking for heretics. They're not looking for converts. And in a sense, the, the, part of the reason for this is a, kind of, is a kind of negative polarization spiral where each party's core argument to the country is the country's biggest problem is the other party. Uh, rather than focusing on what strike most voters as the problems they face in their lives, uh, the, the basic argument is the most important thing about the next election is that those guys not win. And that creates an odd set of incentives internally where party unity becomes extremely important. And so you find both parties now literally censuring the, the people in the party who are best at winning voters who don't usually vote for you. I mean, you look at what happened in Arizona, where the Democratic Party in the state censured Kirsten Cinema in the same week as the Republican Party censured Doug Ducey. These are both people who, in a purple state, have been able to win elections relatively comfortably by appealing to voters who might not normally like the party. And here's the party saying to them, don't do that. That makes us uncomfortable. And you, 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 you sort of want to see a moment in these parties where somebody says, look, what do we do here? What is our business? Ultimately, the business is to build a broad coalition, to get people elected. And as long as the parties fail to see that, we're stuck in this weird situation where really for 30 years now, we've had exceptionally close elections. It's happened for long enough that we don't think about that. But it's a very unusual thing in American politics where every election, Congress could go either way and the presidency pretty much could go either way. The general pattern in American history before the mid-1990s was for long, durable periods of party dominance and then some kind of realignment so that the minority party becomes the majority, again, for a long period. And we've now been stuck in a very long period without a majority party. We have two minority parties. They're both losing all the time. Politics has no winners and hasn't since the 90s. And they seem to be okay with it. They don't mind it because the other party's losing too, so we must be doing something right. And neither party has really had to confront the fact that it has been losing elections that are winnable for a generation. And so therefore, by all rights, should be out of business. Um, and the question of how to break out of that is, is part of the question we've been getting at here. It is the incentives they face are so perverse that th there is a huge opportunity out there for a, a candidate who wants to think a little bit differently about how to build a coalition. But there are very powerful incentives against that internally within both parties. And here we are, we're stuck with with losers. I bring an anecdote to the table that illustrates this, but it's totally outside the the remit of what we've been talking about for the last hour. But this comes across the wire from uh, the Merkite University Law Poll, very reputable poll uh, of a very important swing states electorate about the Supreme Court nomination fight that we're going through right now. To the extent it is a fight, it's pretty boring with an outcome that's predetermined, but nevertheless, they're polling on it. 62% of those polled had a favorable opinion of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson in January. The highest able-to-rate figure for a current justice was 55%. For whom? Clarence Thomas. These are our most popular justices, and they're today the most polarizing figures of both sides of the political spectrum, who only seem to be talking to each other to the, uh, uh, with, while excluding just about everybody else in the middle of the country, which is a much larger group. Yeah. The, you know, there, there's a kind of there, there's an assumption that goes untested at the heart of this, which is that polarization has to mean parity, that the fact that there aren't a lot of voters in the middle should mean that, that we have 50 50 elections. But there's actually no reason why that should be the case. Polarization is is the usual. It's the norm in America. We forget this because we went through a very long period after World War II where huge swaths of voters were willing to vote Republican for president and Democrat for Congress at the same time. And so the Democrats controlled Congress for 40 years and Republicans won the White House almost every time. But that was very unusual. What we're living with now is polarization. The parties hate each other. That's fine. It's still entirely possible for one of them to be at 58 percent and the other at 42. Uh, that's how things have normally worked. The parties seem to assume that's not possible. And so neither of them is trying to work with that kind of poll. No, and, and ask themselves, what's a 60 percent issue? What can I focus on? that will get me more than the voters who already will crawl over broken glass to vote against the other guy. Those people are going to vote for me. Who else can I get? You'd think, again, you'd think that's the business of a politician, but apparently it's not. Well, that and that's the short-term versus long-term thing we've also been talking about in both contexts today, because I think you actually do occasionally see either a Democrat or Republican making the short-term argument on that 60% issue. 
but and Biden kind of did this, you know, return to normalcy. We're going to, you know, he brought in a lot of uh, people who'd previously voted for Trump, all the upset suburban moms or wine moms or whatever you want to call them. But then he got into office and he governed to the left. So the, there, then it's gone. So the, there's no, in, there's no uh, durability to that, to that attempt. It's all very short term. Look, uh, here's, here, I'm going to, I'm going to conclude with this, which is a detail from the, from a new NBC news poll just out this morning. Uh, testing 15 different candidate issues for the 2022 midterms. Speaking of 60%, 70% issues, the leading issue, a candidate uh, more likely to support a candidate, 75%, less likely 11% for a net difference of 64% on this issue. A candidate who supports funding the police and providing them the resources and training they need to protect our communities. That is a 75% issue. So you had basically the mainstream of the Democratic Party not using the phrase defunding the police, but effectively backing measures to restrict, contain, control, and limit the power of police. 75% issue. There's no wonder that Democrats who are, you know, in not in, you know, uh, radical districts are terrified of this and there's it's also but what is a wonder and it's no wonder that biden then said you know we should fund the police in his state of the union but it is a wonder that the party still backs policies that three quarters of the country dislike the democratic party um and there is no comparable issue although i will point out that a candidate who wants the u.s supreme court to overturn the roe v wade decision that would mean that a woman does not have a constitutional right to an abortion. 20% more likely, 58% less likely. So there you have the issue on the other side, let's say. Just to, just to, just to provide uh, ideological polarization parity. Though way more people believe in funding the police and giving them the resources that they need than actually also believe that there should be a constitutional right to an abortion. But nonetheless, there we are. Yuvalovin, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody, if you if you want to read or listen to this interview that we've been this uh, discussion we've been talking about, it's at the New York Times. Ezra, just search Ezra Klein, uh, and uh, and and you'll find it. You can listen to it. You can read it. You should uh, you should delve into it uh, deeply in case we've uh, been been uh, unfair, but we haven't we haven't explo- explored all the depths of it. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, this has been a. a a refreshing relief from the uh, usual conversations that we we've had over the last month i'm sure we'll be back to those and remember commentary.org slash live podcast if you want to hear us blather in person uh, a week from today in palm beach florida so for abe christina noah john Podhoritz, keep the camera burning.